1: All right. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is retired U.S. Army Colonel Irving Smith. Colonel Smith's career has been distinguished by his dedication to fight institutional inequality. That dedication has been underscored by his previous role as West Point's Head of Minority Admissions, where his ability to build cohesive and diverse teams is carried over into his current role as General Manager of Janssen Pharmaceuticals in Athens, Georgia. Irving Smith, Welcome to next steps forward for what I'm sure is going to be a frank and open conversation about race, contemporary challenges, including diversity and inclusion.
2: Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. No, uh, for me, uh, and I would like to just say before we get started, um, I'd really like to recognize you know America's service men and women who are serving overseas right now. It's really easy to forget when we're in the middle of a pandemic, a financial crisis. Um, a very long campaign season that there are Americans who are overseas still providing that blanket of security for us. And so I just wanted to make sure that I recognize them.
1: No, thanks for pointing that out. I appreciate that as well. Sometime along the way during this hour, we're also going to ask you to share your perspective on making the transition from military to civilian life. The power of mentorships, relationship and team building and the value of continuous improvement strategic planning for organizations and individuals. But first, I'd like to share a bit more of your background. You graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1987 and served our country for 27 years, including a tour of duty in Afghanistan. Irving Smith served as an infantry officer, attained the rank of colonel during his time in the Army, and his responsibilities included battalion executive officer, which is no small task considering that the average Army battalion includes 1,100 soldiers. At Janssen Pharmaceuticals, he is responsible for providing leadership and direction for manufacturing resources and activities. He is also a member of the University of Georgia's Supply Chain Advisory Board and the Georgia Association of Manufacturers. Colonel Smith has written numerous articles and appeared on national news broadcasts to speak about the history of desegrega- desegregation in the military and how he maintained his composure and displayed strength in the face of adversity as one of only a few black men in his regiment during his time in service is recognized as an expert on the historical injustice and inequality in military institutions and where our military branches appear to be headed with respect to those issues. Inequality, discrimination, and outright racism in American culture and history have been no secret. I think fewer people have a sense of how those issues have played out in the history of our armed forces. Irving, would you share with us the history of segregation and integration in the military branches and maybe the highs and lows throughout the history?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I mean, America really has a storied history with African-Americans, and I would say historically disenfranchised groups uh, throughout its history. And, you know, from, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, African-Americans, women, um, gays, uh, and uh, lesbians have served in our military since its inception. You know, as you know, uh, Christmas Addicts uh, was a part of the Revolutionary War. You know, in the War of eighteen twelve, um, we didn't have uh, hardly any African American serving. In fact, uh, none served in the army, but uh, several did serve uh, in the Navy, and did up jumping uh, ship over. Uh, uh, you know, during the Civil War, which was the next major war, uh, several African-Americans did serve on the Union side. It depends on which resource that you go to, but most would suggest that it's somewhere between 180,000, and 190,000 served uh, on the Union side in the Civil War. Um, and uh, probably about 7,000 or so of those were officers. You know, additionally, uh, African-Americans did serve uh, uh, for the Confederates as well. Um, Although none really served in combat units, many of them were day laborers, grave diggers, uh, menial tasks that had to be done to keep that army supplied and moving. So even on the Confederate side, you did see some African-American service. You know, in the war of, uh, you know, right after that, you know, the next uh, piece was was really peacetime service and um, the uh, U.S. created a law where Buffalo soldiers uh, could serve as the first peacetime uh, all African-American unit uh, in America uh, at that time. And then I think in World War I, uh, what you saw is that the armed forces were still entirely segregated um, and there were some all black, uh, units, the 92nd and 93rd infantry, uh, really are the ones, uh, that come to mind for me. And then, um, there were also some other units so that people don't talk about, uh, as much, uh, for instance, you know, the 65th infantry division out of Puerto Rico, uh, which ended up serving later on, uh, during world war II, along with several other African-American units. Many movies have been made about that. Uh, World War II experience. Um, probably the most famous one is the Tuskegee uh, Airmen movie. Um, and it really wasn't until 1948 when the army uh, and armed forces writ large uh, became desegregated. You know, unfortunately, um, even though sometimes things happen de jour, meaning in law, de facto in real life, they don't actually follow suit quite as quickly. So even though the armed forces was officially desegregated by Harry Truman's Executive Order 9981, um, it took a little while for that to really catch hold. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? The U.S. was still in the throes, in the thick uh, of Jim Crow uh, that was going on. Uh, And as you know, the wars after that in Vietnam, um, and, and by the way, I should go back and say, that during World War II, uh, uh, blacks were actually drafted, and about two hundred and ninety thousand actually uh, signed up for the draft, and ultimately, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand or so ended up serving, you know, in that Western theater. So, a good number uh, of uh, African Americans serving in World War II, uh, as well. In Vietnam, we certainly had a draft, uh, and African Americans. Uh, played a significant part in that war and also participated in our conscript, in our conscription uh military and um you know like it or not i think that there was a lot of controversy around that right uh african americans uh in their in america uh were not being treated as citizens yet they were fighting for the rights that other for other people overseas uh so which brought us probably next to uh, Operation Desert Storm. And by that time, uh, the Army had been fully integrated. Uh, African-Americans were serving from every, uh, at every level in the organization and in all branches uh, of the service uh, to include in the Army uh, combat arms units uh, as well as non-combat arms units. And uh, as you know, in our war on uh, terror, uh, African Americans have uh, served um, in full proportions uh, to our society. So that's kind of uh, the history in a nutshell. Did I answer your question?
1: Uh, very thoroughly. Thank you. That's that's some nutshell <laughs> you put it into there. So thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's interesting. You know, Chris, people often ask me like, why? It, you know, how do you keep people out of service and? You know, my answer to that is usually pretty simple. It's, you know, there's four reasons or excuses that we've had for denying service to any historically disenfranchised population. And I, I usually like to call out, you know, people of color. I like to call out uh, women. Um, and I like to call out homosexuals because the history is so rich there. But what we should know is that there are other Um, groups that have been uh, excluded from our military. But the four arguments that we've typically seen throughout history are, the first one is that they just simply can't fight. Um, That if they were put in a fight, they would fail uh, because typically they're not smart enough uh, or they're not strong enough. And and clearly you could see that argument with African-Americans You could probably see that with women right women are you know they're softer they're sissies they're those kind of things right same thing with homosexuals you know they're sissies they're weak they won't fight the second argument is typically the medical argument that you see and with african americans you know for a long time as it was that they were disease carriers um and you clearly saw this during world war ii when people talked about uh, African Americans uh, being syphilis carriers right so there would be no way that we would have syphilis carriers serving side by side with white men in combat um, you know the third argument uh, is is typically the morale uh, argument and that argument is really you know we need to keep uh, black soldiers women you uh, You know, the LGBTI community separate from white soldiers because they will kill the morale of those white soldiers. So, for instance, the argument might sound something like this. No self-serving white man back, you know, in World War II would ever serve with an African-American. If we allowed women to serve next to uh, men in combat, the men will stop fighting to save the women right? Um, We can't have uh, homosexuals uh, in a foxhole with a straight man, right? So that's the third argument. And the fourth argument is uh, really another interesting one, and it usually revolves around money. Um, It will cost us a fortune to integrate because we will have to uh, create, you know, new facilities. And so the argument might sound like this around women. Um, You know, we will have to have separate restrooms um, in combat theaters uh, if we have women uh, in the armed forces. If we put blacks in, we will have to build more facilities uh, to house them because, you know, once again, no white man would ever sleep in the same quarters uh, as a black man. You know, we can't have men and women sleeping together. So we're going to have to build more facilities to enable that. So it's interesting that these arguments have kind of pervaded uh, American history for a very, very long time. And in some sense, I think that they're they're almost embedded in the fabric, uh, even today to some degree.
1: Well, thankfully, those arguments now have uh, holes blown in them, look like Swiss cheese. So um, and thanks, you know, to, to many folks like yourself, um, but I appreciate you sharing those those again so-called arguments. You know, Colonel, you personally had overcome significant obstacles during your military career, particularly as one of only a few black members in your regiment. If it's not too personal, what injustices and inequalities did you experience in the military?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a, a really g- great question, um, and you know, as I reflect on on questions like that, I should start out by saying. You know, as you said in the intro, Chris, uh, I started out uh, at West Point. And, you know, back in the late 80s, there was a surge and a push uh, to bring uh, Black cadets uh, to West Point. And I do think that there, um, there was a, a bit of marginalization, but I would tell you that my classmates, uh, for the most part, um, I didn't really feel that the in-your-face racism, um, I think that there were some institutional things uh, that happened, and that probably still happened today, that I know still happened today, uh, in fact. Um, and as I got into the Army, uh, my goal was always to be a part of elite units, uh, number one, because I thought that those that was where the best soldiers were, and number two, that's where I could learn the most uh, about leadership and war fighting. And so I, I think the the organization that you're talking about was when I was in the 75th Ranger Regiment uh, in First Battalion in Savannah. And for some portion of that, you know, I was clearly the only uh, African American officer in that unit. You know, when I first showed up, I actually had a field artillery uh, officer uh, who was there, a great friend of mine, and, and another West Point grad. Uh, and after he left, uh, it, was, it was just me and that organization. And I would say, once again, uh, there was little uh, overt racism, um, but there were some institutional things. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we went for training uh, in Scotland, uh, one year and I was part of the advanced party, uh, being a part of the logistics unit, uh, the S4 unit. And we exited the aircraft, uh, because it was a airborne operation and I hit the ground. Uh, and I clearly remember, you know, get my, my gear all set up and walking, and I ran into, uh, one of the Brits uh, who happened to be there from uh, to Para, And he looked at me and his question was, might you only, might you be the only black sheep in the woods? And I didn't get it. I was like, what are you talking about? And he asked me again, he said, might you be the only black sheep in the woods? I said, I don't know about that, but I'm 75th Ranger supposed to be doing the link up at the rally point. And just about then, uh, my boss, uh, a a wonderful man by the name of John Lair, uh, who retired recently as a general officer, um, I remember him coming up and grabbing the guy, and you know, really giving him a shaking down for that. And I was very, very much uh, impressed by that uh, in that unit, Uh, because I think it was the one place. and now there are multiple places in the Army where at that time, people respected you for what you brought to the table. And in a lot of ways, it, it was a meritocracy. Um, and so I, I do remember several people in that unit standing up for me. So I'd like to bring that out.
1: You mentioned the Army being a meritocracy. You know, it's a big organization, as we know. And I imagine other black personnel had different experiences, you know, some better, obviously, some worse than yours. Certainly, many of them were not able to achieve the success that you did. So what factors would you attribute those different experiences and outcomes?
2: Yeah, you know, the the first thing, um, Chris, I have to say uh, right off is that, um, you know, I've been the benefactor of a great educational system. Uh, I grew up in Albany, New York. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to a little private military school called the Albany Academy, um, which allowed me to get to West Point. It allowed me to take the right courses. It allowed me to get great SAT scores and transition that uh, into a United States Military Academy education. And one of the things I think that has prevented African-American officers uh, from being truly successful in the past uh, has been the fact that most of our black officer corps comes from historically black colleges and universities. And at those historically black colleges and universities, um, there are typically, uh, African American leads, um, in those, uh, schools. Um, and that in and of itself, uh, does not hurt those ROTC candidates. What does, however, is that, you know, folks who go to West Point are immersed 24-7 in Army culture. And so they learn the do's and don'ts. Um, They are exposed to people who don't necessarily look like them, may not listen to the same music as them, uh, may not even have the same type of dressing styles as them. But those West Point cadets learn that in order to survive, um, in order to uh, be looked at as an equal in those units that you have to participate in those events. There's a certain style of dress. And sometimes those African-Americans who are in historically black colleges and universities just were not the benefactors of those things. I think many of them learned it on the job uh, when they got in the army, which made them successful or in the Navy air force uh, or Marine Corps. Um, they learned those things over time, but, but you know, West Point folks had those benefits right up front. I think that the second thing that, that really helped me uh, was just a vast network. Um, one of the things that I pride myself both on uh, during my military career as well as now in my civilian career is having the ability to build a support structure uh, and to build a network uh, that can help you when you have challenges Uh, when you have problems, and sometimes even a network where there's someone in the room uh, when there are promotions or when there are things that are good things for your career uh, that can help you out. And so my network, which the foundation of which was at West Point, but also spread to other elite units like the 101st, the 82nd, um, and the Ranger Regiment. And the people that were leading those organizations were typically the people who were not only leading the Army, but building a pipeline uh, of people that were going to lead the Army after they left. So they're successors. And so I was privy to that. So that was the second thing that I think helped me. And I I would say the third thing, uh, you know, Chris, that really helped me, um, I believe, was Really, in some ways, not truly knowing what I was going to do until very late in my career. You know, my goal after West Point, I had planned to get out after five years. And over time, uh, at about my fourth or fifth year of service, I was in the Ranger Regiment. And I was running around the woods with the best soldiers in the world, getting a jump out of airplanes, going to exciting places, And I had a talk with my wife, and I said, hey, I said I was going to get out, but I I really like this. Um, And she said, hey, if you like it, why would we get out? Our quality of life is great. Let's keep an open mind. If you keep liking it, stay in. If you don't like it, then we'll get out. And I think that helped me truly love what I did because I didn't feel pressured to have to stay in.
1: You applied a lot of what you experienced and learned about overcoming discrimination to ensuring the success of young black military members who followed you. You did a lot of that in your role as head of minority admissions at West Point. What did that position entail and what drew you to it?
2: Yeah, Chris, another great question. Um, you know, this uh, that uh, was an interesting role. It was one that uh, initially I didn't even want. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, I had been running around the woods, uh, jumping out of airplanes, um, you know, with the best soldiers in the world. And, uh, I got a call from the USMA admissions office. And, uh, at the time they said that they were looking for an African-American officer to, uh, lead what was in essentially the diversity office or the minority admissions office. And I said, why would I do that? I'm having a blast out here in the army. And, they offered me fully funded graduate school. And I have to tell you, you know, the family that I come from, uh, education was always the most important thing for us. You know, my father grew up in a very large family, um, and he had to enlist in order to get money to go to college. And he did so. He ended up going on to get a master's. But one thing that he instilled in us was education is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And you'll hear that a lot in the black community. And and to this day, I believe that's true. And so every chance that I got to go to school, I took it. And so when offered an opportunity to go to Columbia Business School and get an MBA and then come back to admissions, uh, I I jumped on it. Uh, I wasn't so enamored with the job, but I will tell you in the end, Uh, it became a calling for me. And why was it a calling? Uh, It was a calling because I got to travel around the country to talk about the benefits and opportunities of a West Point education and influence the lives of hundreds of Americans. And I would tell you that, you know, those African-American homes that I went into, the churches that I went to, I wasn't even so concerned that they went to West Point. I mean, I was looking for the top talent, but it gave me an opportunity to talk to young kids, their parents, their grandparents about what an education can do for you. And that's why that was such a calling for me. I mean, selling West Point was fairly easy. I mean, where can you go where you go to school and it's free when you graduate, you don't have to look for a job. And oh, by the way, not only are you gonna have a job, but you're gonna have a job, not at entry level, but at management level. And you're gonna get to lead people right away. And on top of that, you know, there are many other benefits associated uh, with being in the Army. So I think that was important. The, the, you know, really the second or third thing um, was the opportunity to work with some amazing other officers uh, in that office. Uh, And every year I got to hire five minority outreach officers that worked with me. And I typically look for people who could sell West Point. I was looking for people that could go sit in a family's house and the parents would look at them and say, I want my child to look like that person. And some of those people today are doing the most amazing things. I think of guys like John Hampton and Wardell Sullivan and Jamie Irick and uh, 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 James Ardo- uh, Ardofio. So, you know, as you look at those people um, who are doing amazing things in America today, um, they had a tremendous influence on my life. And, and hopefully I influenced them in a positive way as well. You know, the final thing uh, about that role is I was the sounding board uh, for why we needed to have more African-American officers uh, in our army. Uh, I made the argument that we needed to increase the number of African-Americans at West Point. You know, at the time we were, when I got there, we were probably bringing in 75 or 80 every year. And my goal was to always go over 100 and with those young officers that I brought in to be outreach, we met that goal every single year.
1: We've been talking to retired Army Colonel Irving Smith. He'll be right back after a short break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice The White House doctor makes house calls. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: all right, we are back with retired Army colonel and current general manager of Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Irving Smith. Colonel, we've talked a lot about history in the first half of our conversation, but now let's talk about your history. Could you please share a little bit with us about your early years? You know, Where and how did you grow up?
2: Yeah, so Chris, I, I grew up in Albany, uh, New York, which is the capital of New York. Um, and I have a very small, immediate family. Uh, it was just me uh, and my sister. Um, my mom uh, came from a very large family, and so did my dad, so did my dad. They had nine and eleven uh, children. Um I-, I would say that uh, neither one of them uh was middle class. I, I think I-, I could argue that you know, my dad uh, came from a lower class or poor family. Uh, his father made Uh, very little money. And at the height of his career, he was working as an elevator operator, uh, which doesn't even exist uh, anymore. Um, And, you know, my father was the oldest and he was told that, you know, he should not uh, go to college. He should pursue work uh, to help support his family. Uh, But he had some different uh, ideas. You know, interestingly, uh, my grandmother on his side, uh, was very light-skinned as was, uh, my grandfather on my father's side. Uh, so my grandfather was half Irish, uh, half black. Um, and my grandmother, uh, was very light-skinned and her claim to fame is that she could pass. Um, so she ended up, uh, working as a nurse in a white hospital, uh, which gave her some, some extra income, um. And on my mother's side, uh, you know, my grandmother, uh, I never uh, did meet. Uh, She died uh, before I was born. I did meet my great grandmother, though, uh, who died at the age of uh, 104. And uh, she was actually a slave. And so it was it was great to get to talk to her. And I clearly remember going to her 104th birthday party. And she's a woman who smoked a corncob pipe and all those things, all the things that you shouldn't do, you know, eat the fatty bacons and smoke tobacco. And, uh, you know, she lived a long life. And my grandfather, uh, her son was actually a sharecropper in Mississippi. And, uh, you know, he made his way north and he was very industrious, uh, worked very hard and Ended up uh, owning a city block uh, in Albany, New York, of of houses, uh, and which is downtown in a very, uh, you know, area that's being built up and gentrified now. And that property is probably worth a a ton of money nowadays. So those are those are kind of my roots. Uh, I did get an opportunity in high school to go to uh, the Albany Academy, and the Albany Academy um, uh, was just an amazing opportunity for me a very expensive private uh, school. Um, And, you know, my parents killed themselves to make sure that uh, I I could go there and to pay the tuition uh, and provide the uniforms and books uh, and all those things that I needed. And I I translated that uh, into a college education, uh, as I said before, um, at West Point. I I would also tell you that school, the Albany Academy, only has 30 children in it uh, in my class. I graduated with a class of 30 people. And this is how, it's interesting how how life works. Uh, I ended up um, my senior year waiting until October to apply for schools. And one day I had a good friend of mine, his name is John Tyree, whose father was an army officer, retired colonel, who said, hey, John and I are going to West Point uh, to look at the school. Would you like to go? And I said, absolutely not. There is no way I want to go there. I don't know what it is, but I know it's, I don't want to do that. And my mother happened to be there and she said, oh yeah, he wants to go. He, he will be there at the appointed time uh, because I hadn't applied anywhere. And I went, I went on a visit. Uh, I stayed with a, a gentleman who had graduated from my high school the year before. And I fell in love with the place. Um, and uh, I came home. I told my mother, I loved it. Uh, she asked me how much it cost to go there. And I said it was free. And she said, that's where you're going. Uh, you know, it's interesting though. My father, on the other hand, said no. You know, he had to go in the military to pay for his education. And so he said, I've saved my entire life. So you wouldn't have to do that. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea. And ultimately, uh, my mother and I went out and uh, I ended up going to West Point and graduate. I was commissioned as an infantry officer. You know, and served in all ranks from second lieutenant to colonel, uh, served in the 101st, the 82nd Airborne Division, the 2nd Armored Division, the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, And, you know, look, my last uh, tour of duty um, was uh, as the chief of staff for a combined joint special operations task force, uh, which I'm very proud of, which uh, consisted of some of the most elite soldiers in the Army. Uh, We had a staff of about 1,800, which I got to lead. Um, which is amazing. And then, uh, you know, look, I I would say that the second half of my career was really all about being what I call uh, a warrior scholar. And so I got to teach at West Point uh, for several years. Uh, I ran the sociology program. Um, I got a chance to run the leadership program uh, for a short period of time. And that was all wonderful. Um, And Uh, those opportunities uh, to teach and serve at West Point also gave me increased opportunities for education once again. Um, Just prior to going off to Afghanistan in 2012, I did get an opportunity to go to the uh, Army War College. And uh, because I had a PhD when I went there, I was also given the opportunity to teach at the Army War College. And to me, that was probably one of the most amazing experiences I've had, to teach the next generation of leadership uh, to get an opportunity to sit in classes with them uh, and learn from them and share my experiences with them uh, as well was, was very, very powerful. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I think when I came back from Afghanistan during my last tour, um, I had decided that it was probably time for me to think about what was next. Do you hang around And hope to make it to 30 years of service as a colonel or potentially get picked up as a flag officer um, and continue to serve? Or do you leave the service at a certain time early enough to be able to have a second career? And I chose the latter.
1: Let's stick with education for a minute there. You mentioned in the first half of our show about the old saying that someone can take a lot of things from you, but they can never take away your education. You just touched on it briefly here you hold five degrees, two from the U.S. Military Academy, and one each from the U.S. Naval War College, U.S. Army War College, and Columbia Business School in fields varying from finance to sociology. So I guess, obviously, you believe in that old saying, but why has it been so important to you to continue to accomplish so much academically? You, you talked about you know, training the next generation. Is that what drives you in, in that space, or are there other things out there?
2: Yeah, I think it was a combination of things, Chris. Uh, The first thing is I always had my father in the back of my mind. Like you said, you know, they can never take your education from you. Um, I I know that, you know, education is the key to critical thinking. And I always thought that it would help me in my Army career as well. Um, You know, on the modern battlefield, uh, soldiers are asked to work with lots of different organizations and people. You know, in Afghanistan, when I went there, you know, we were asking uh, young captains and even lieutenants in some cases to be mayors of cities, right? You, there's no school for being a mayor, right? And so they were learning those things on the fly, and we were helping them as leaders to be able to do that. And I think you gain those critical thinking skills, the thinking out of the box from education. So I think in all of those opportunities to include business school, to include you know, my PhD in sociology, those are not necessarily opportunities to learn a bunch of things that I could throw at people, but more so to think about how to ask the right questions, how to get out of the box, right? So not necessarily what to think, um, but how to think.
1: Let's talk about relationship and team building. How important have each of these abilities been to your career? And how do we go about building effective one-on-one relationships and teams to mesh and accomplish bigger and better things?
2: Yeah, yeah another great question. You know, for me, um, building relationships has, has been a big part of my life. Even today, you know, I try to meet one new person every day. Um, someone that I can expand my network with. Um, early on in my career, as I've alluded to earlier, I think my West Point network was what I really cling to. Um, however, I think those educational experiences and, and being able to meet others uh, has, has truly helped. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, you know, when I was in the University of Maryland working on my PhD, my PhD advisor was a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. David Siegel and just a brilliant uh, sociologist. And I was working on a paper uh, on the Romanian army. And, you know, at the time, Dr. Siegel said, hey, you know what, you've done a lot of work on this. You might be the authority in the U.S. on the Romanian army. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way. If I'm the authority, we have problems. But what he did was, because we were in the D.C. area, he introduced me um, to the ambassador uh for Romania. And, you know, we had a really nice conversation about the Romanian army. And he, you know, he assured me, he said, hey, you are probably one of the authorities on the Romanian army. And so getting the opportunity to meet people who then introduce you to someone else who can who can potentially help you down the road or help you think about problems is is truly impactful. And so I think this is one of the things that, you know, if I were a young uh, army officer or even now in my corporate role, I tell people that your network is something that you have to build and continue to work on. Uh, It's not something that you build and you let go because it will die. It's like an organism and it takes time and you have to nurture it. So even now I reach out, you know, every day to someone that I haven't spoken to. Uh, in a while, um, and I also think this is where I've gotten a lot of my mentors from. And I, I know that we've we've talked a little bit about mentorship in the past, but you know, to me, uh, I've had several mentors. Uh, probably the most influential uh, is a uh, Colonel Robert Johnson, who actually now I'm pretty close to. He lives in Atlanta. Uh, And, you know, we watched a football game a couple of weeks ago, and it was great to sit around and talk to him, not only about profession, uh, but about life. Um, I've had other people that I've talked about, uh, people like John Lair from the Ranger Regiment, uh, who, you know, I talked about that incident in Scotland. um, But, you know, he was the guy who showed me other things. And I'll I'll give you an example, Uh, you know. I had been in the Ranger Regiment uh, for a couple of years. We had a new battalion commander um, and I thought that I had done a pretty good job at what I was doing. And so did John Lair. But I got a rating uh, that was not what we call a top block uh, in the army. And you know, John Lair uh, went to that battalion commander uh, with some of his peers and fought for me and you know, that was a pivotal moment in my career because that battalion commander changed that rating. But I learned that if you're going to lead people, you have to have courage. And John Lair put his own career on the line to make sure that I was successful. Um, and so, you know, building your network having mentors, getting those relationships is amazing. Um, And even as a senior officer, I I had an opportunity to go out and do a sabbatical. And uh, I took the opportunity to work on talent management, talent development, and talent acquisition for the Army. And uh, I worked for three companies, essentially. I'd like to talk about two. Uh, One is Macy's, or I'm sorry, was uh, Comcast Cable. And the other one was MasterCard. And at Comcast uh, Cable, uh, I met a gentleman named Bill Strahan, and Bill is currently uh, the head of their HR. But Bill was just an amazing person to sit down and talk to. And even today, uh, you know, just a few months ago, I sat down and I talked to him about things that are going on in my business now that he could help me with. So these relationships have followed me for years. Uh, the same thing with Ajay Banga. You know, I shoot him a note occasionally. I get a very quick response, um, and it, it has truly, truly helped me um, be everything that I can be, um, and be the best me that I can be, having those people to bounce ideas off of.
1: That's a good army uh, marketing slogan there. I appreciate you sliding <laughs>
2: that in. Good, good sales pitch. You
1: know, people are beginning to recognize more and more that inclusion is essential to the success of organizations and creating richer personal lives. It's not always easy for people to figure out what to do or how about going to do it. What advice do you have for helping our audience appreciate the value of diversity and inclusion, and maybe more importantly, how do we make it happen?
2: Yeah, this is another great question. Um, You know, Diversity and inclusion is about really, first of all, about treating people like you would like to be treated. Um, I would say that a lot of people believe that we do diversity Uh, because it's the right thing to do, and it is. But I think that there's more to it than that, Chris. I I really think that there is a business case uh, for diversity. And the business case is pretty simple, right? Um, If we don't take advantage of all of the diversity, all of the people at our disposal, uh, we are just giving up a great portion of our talent pool that can bring value to our organizations. The second thing is that the research is pretty clear that if you have a complex task and you need to get it accomplished, a diverse group is much more likely to find a good solution than a heterogeneous group. So that's the second piece of the business case. The third piece is that, especially for our military, this applies, is that if you run an organization, you want that organization to be representative of your customers because they may be able to give you some insight into what your customers need. You know, in the military, our customers are the great American public. At Johnson & Johnson, uh, our customers are people from all races, religions, creeds, and we need to bring that diversity. And uh, let me give you an example real quick. Uh, You know, Band-Aids only used to come in one color. Um, And it was like that, uh, kind of yellowish, uh, beige-ish color. Um, you know, now we have band-aids that are in every shade of the human skin. Why? Because I don't want someone to necessarily know that I had a cut and maybe I can hide it with that band-aid that's that color. So that um, suggestion came from employees at the company. And so that's you know, another business case for diversity. And the final thing is is probably, it's, it's all about the future. Um, y- you know, in our military especially, uh, we know that we're going to have conflicts and we're going to have wars and we need a labor pool and we need a smart labor pool that can get out of the box and figure out how to do that. If we don't include every part of our society, we will not have that armed forces of the future that we need. And the same thing in businesses. Businesses that aren't diverse, don't think about their customers' needs, and don't have those labor pools that help them do that, end up failing.
1: You've talked about the responsibility that leaders have to reach down. You know, in other words, it's about those at the very top, making personal connections with employees at all levels as a way to serve as a resource to help them become more successful. You, know, you shared a few of your stories with us. This idea is one that really resonates with me, how do you reach down in your role as general manager and build those relationships with other employees? You know, what do you personally believe is the benefit of doing this?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. You know, m- most people spend ninety percent of their day attacking tasks, right? You create a to-do list um, and you put little boxes on a piece of paper and you go through those tasks and you check them off. Uh, you know, my philosophy is a little bit different. Um, I-, I try to spend Uh, at least half my day leading, getting the pulse of the organization. And what I've found is that when you spend time doing that, people will take care of the tasks. Those will get done. And so, you know, I believe in the old school leadership by walking around. Um, Servant leadership is a big part of what I do. Understanding what the needs of my employees are, of the people that I work with uh, and making sure that they're happy, healthy and well taken care of. Because if you think about it, Chris, um, if you know that people care about you, you know that they're resourcing you and you know that at the end of the day um, that you have a future there, um, you are gonna be more productive and take care of that company. So for me, That's a big part of it. And today that has been all magnified by COVID. You know, I go into the office pretty much every single day um, because we have people who are making pharmaceutical products uh, for the public. And in some respects, they are putting themselves at risk when they go in. And so I go in to make sure that we've taken every precaution to keep them safe, uh, number one, and to find out what they need in order to be successful. So they can make those products that keep our customers and patients um, safe on a daily basis.
1: Now you mentioned COVID-19, and of course this wouldn't be 2020 without a COVID-19 question for you, (laughs) unfortunately. As the general manager of Janssen Pharmaceuticals, during this pandemic, you've had to keep these employees safe as you referenced while keeping a business running and profitable. What sort of planning and execution going to striking that right balance to get that done?
2: Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's a team effort, right? Um, you know, Ir- Irving Smith is just uh, one guy. And one of the things that I've found is that if you harness um, the intelligence of your folks, uh, you give them the freedom to come up with creative solutions, uh, they, will, they will rise and respond and I would tell you that this site in Athens has done that. I think that Johnson and Johnson as a whole has truly uh, done some amazing things uh, on this COVID front uh, to make sure that number one we can work on a uh, a vaccine, uh, number two, and we can keep pushing out the the products that our customers and patients truly need uh, on a daily basis, and. I think what COVID has really shown me is that a crisis truly is uh, the mother of innovation. Um, I have seen exemplary examples of people who have come up with novel solutions um, in record time. And I am so proud of those people and so proud to be a part of that organization.
1: We've got just a few minutes left here, Colonel you've had and continue to have a fascinating, successful career with five degrees under your belt. What's next for Irving Smith?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot uh, about legacy and what that means. And to me, you know, my, my legacy is all about people. Um, where are the people uh, that I've come into contact with and that I've influenced throughout my life? Uh, Are they thriving? Are they doing good things for our nation, uh, for our world? Are they contributing to society in a meaningful way? Um, And have I helped them in those endeavors? And at the end of the day, uh, if I had three things that I would like to say that I was known for is number one is being a great father and husband. Um, The second thing would be uh, being a person who has been able to influence others by providing purpose, motivation, and direction, and helping them make the world a better place, and maybe the last thing—and I, I don't know if it's if it's least uh, or most important—but I, I would like for people to say, you know, what he was a nice guy who did good things.
1: Those are three pretty good things to go on to. Irving Smith, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for turning the next steps forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.